Well, good morning, Christ Hold Fast gang. Good to be back with you to here today after, man, it's been a few weeks since I've seen you. I was on vacation in California, just hanging out with family and friends and eating lots of In-N-Out Burger and Mexican food, all the things that make life wonderful and worth a living. Uh, but it is good to be back with you here on the East Coast today. I'm actually at Tuscarora Retreat and Conference Center. Uh, this week, but I figured I needed to get back into the swing of things. And so I decided that we are going to be looking at the epistle to the Ephesians over the next number of weeks. We're going to be doing that for quite some time. So if you come to my devotion on Tuesdays, that's what you can expect to see for the foreseeable future. Ephesians chapter uh, one through six, we'll be digging into the whole book. It's a wonderful book with lots of great nuggets in it. Some of my favorite verses in all of scripture are in the book. Uh, so a few things about background. We won't spend a ton of time there, but we'll give you a little background of the letter. Uh, first of all, who is the author? Well, verse one makes it pretty clear that the author was Paul, uh, the apostle Paul. And really throughout history, there's been no debate about that. Um, everyone has sort of uh, acknowledged that this was a Pauline epistle in some modern scholarship. There's, there's some discussion about possibilities of someone else, but really those arguments don't hold up and they're not really worth our time to address today. That's not the purpose of these devotions to figure out all that stuff. Uh, just needless to say, you should know the vast majority of people have accepted that it's a Pauline letter, especially since the beginning of the letter, it says it's written by Paul. Uh, second thing, uh, when was it written? Eh, probably, there's good reason to believe from Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1 and 4 verse 1 and other verses uh, where Paul mentions his imprisonment that, that it was probably written when he was actually imprisoned and that we know was about AD 62 or so. So uh, not long before his death uh, is recorded to have happened in history. But, uh, but yes, uh, near or around that time is when he wrote this letter. And uh, finally, what was the purpose of the letter? What was the significance or what was the, the, the reason for the letter? Well, the fact is, Ephesians is a little bit of a mystery that way because oftentimes when you read an epistle in the New Testament, uh, the apostle is writing to correct problems that are very evident in the church. And you'll see this, for example, like in uh, the letters to the Corinthians, especially 1 Corinthians, where there's all sorts of sin causing chaos in the church, and so the, the Apostle Paul has to correct a number of issues. But the Ephesian church, there doesn't seem to be a major issue that he's correcting. There doesn't seem to be something that really stands out to scholars. It doesn't mean that there are issues he's objecting to, but it just doesn't seem that there's a major plague uh, affecting the church at the time that he writes this. Uh, that said, you can detect a couple of things that are very prevalent throughout that may hint at some issues in the church. Uh, number one, there's a lot of emphasis in this book on God reconciling the whole world to himself through Christ, and we're going to talk about that uh, today as we look at our passage. Uh, and number two, connected with that, there's a lot of emphasis on what the whole world means. And the whole world, it turns out, literally does mean the world. Uh, it means everybody. And it means people from every walk of life and every background. And so you have Paul going in great detail 
talking about the wall of hostility that had traditionally been there be between Jews and Gentiles being uh, torn down because of Christ and Christ being the peace between all people. So, so those are big themes. And then finally, as you get to the end, there's a real emphasis on understanding uh, that we are in a spiritual battle every day of our life and that, that the primary battles we're dealing with are not by, not against flesh and blood, but against uh, principalities and powers and, and spiritual forces of darkness. So, so that's just a little bit of an introduction as to what a uh, little background about Ephesians. I could give some detail about the city of Ephesus, but I think we'll get into that and the area of Ephesus. I think we're going to get into that quite a bit as we dig into this book. Uh, for now, what I want to do is I want to read uh, verses uh, 1 through 14 so that we have um, so that we can start off fresh right from the beginning and then just dig into that uh, with the remaining time we have. So it says, Paul, an apostle of God, or apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Pretty typical beginning to a letter. Nothing too unusual there. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. End of reading. Now, if it just felt like when I was reading that, that that was one big, long, run-on sentence, that's because, in fact, it was. In the original Greek, you have to remember that we didn't have uh, the same sort of divisions that our modern Bibles make for us to help us read it. And I think oftentimes actually make it worse. This literally, verses 3 through 14, is just one excited, exclamatory sentence from the Apostle Paul. So he gets on a topic, and you can kind of see he's like, ooh, ooh. He gets so excited that he just forgets to, like, to end it. He just keeps on going and going and going. And, and that's wonderful, but there's, when you read something that long, what happens with a run-on sentence is you can sort of, uh, what's the saying, miss the... Try and, we want to try and dig into the trees here with the remaining time we have left. Okay, so first of all, 
uh, let's ask the question, who's the actor in the passage? Who's the actor in the passage? Well, look real carefully with me. I won't read it again, but it's actually the whole Trinity. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In verses 3 through 6, you have the work of the Father. In verses 7 through 12, you have the work of the Son. And in verses 13 and 14, you have the work of the Spirit. And each stanza ends with the words, quote, to the praise of his glory. Verse 6, talking about the Father, ends with to the praise of his glory. Verse 12 ends with to the praise of his glory, when talking about the Son. Verse 14, when talking about the Spirit's work, ends with to the praise of his glory. So this is yet another example of Trinitarian ideas being brought into the New Testament even before the doctrine was necessarily officially formulated by the church much later in later centuries. You see these hints of it all throughout the New Testament where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when they're mentioned, get the same sort of praise and adulation get the same sort of level playing field when Paul or Peter or whoever discusses their characters. So there's the Father, there's the Son, there's the Holy Spirit. They're all involved in the actions that Paul is going to talk about in this passage. And what he talks about in this passage primarily is what people, what you and I, what God's church receive, quote, in Christ. That's the phrase you can't i mean that is so important in this passage in christ you could if you go through the new testament and just mark every time you see that phrase in christ i have to tell you there's a lot of good news there it's actually a good practice to do there's a lot of good news in looking up that phrase in christ there's an awful lot of blessing we receive as a matter of fact paul says we receive in christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places now, he goes on, I think, to describe what those spiritual blessings are throughout the passage. He says, first of all, that we become holy and blameless before him. Holy and blameless before him. Now, now a number of commentators, if you read commentaries at all on this book, will see this as a description, basically, of our morality. So then the statement that's being made by Paul is that the reason God has saved us or chosen us is so that we would become more holy and blameless in our lives here on earth, in our morality. And so the end goal in this interpretation then would be for us to be more moral. However, the context surrounding this, so focused on God's grace and redemption and forgiveness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, would suggest to me and to many others that it is actually describing not the progression of our life, but in fact the declaration that God makes over us in Christ. That through faith in Christ, we are declared holy and blameless, whether we actually experience that or not, which in this life, if we're honest, we do not. After all, the whole passage is detailing that very fact, who you are in Christ. You are not your sins. You are not your own righteousness, but you are rather his holiness and his blamelessness. And besides, again, we know 
that in this life we will continually struggle with sin, as the Apostle Paul makes clear in his letters in Galatians and to the Romans, chapter 7. But so he has chosen us to declare us to be holy and blameless. That's the way I would understand that. But secondly, he's also given us the blessing in the heavenly places of adoption. Paul mentions that in this passage. So spiritually, the Bible pictures us apart from Christ, sometimes like, like orphans without a home. And again, the picture of adoption requires that we emphasize, Paul emphasizes in this passage that God is the one doing the choosing, that God is the actor. We have one of these spiritual blessings we have is, quote, redemption through Jesus' blood. Now, the word redemption means bought back from slavery for freedom. The idea is that we're enslaved to sin, the world and the devil. That's found in chapters 2, verses 1 through 3. There's a big discussion of what that slavery looks like. It actually leads to death. But through Jesus' death on the cross, he has paid the ransom price, his very blood, the blood of God, and therefore redeemed us. And because he's redeemed us, Paul says he's forgiven us of all of our trespasses. Since Jesus has paid it all on our behalf, it is finished, we are forgiven of all our sins. Now it's important to note, though, that Paul doesn't just say sins, but rather a different word, trespasses. Because sin can just mean an incidental mistake. It just it, Sin literally just means like missing the mark. You just didn't hit perfection. But trespasses? Trespasses means willful, intentional mistakes. It's, a, it's an act of the will. It's, a, it's, it's willfully going against disobeying. Even the purposeful rebellion against God has been forgiven in Christ. And therefore, we have obtained an inheritance. The purpose of our adoption is that we might become inheritors of God's kingdom. We are now children of the king and therefore have the rights to all that he owns. And I like to point out always that when it comes to an inheritance, you don't actually do anything to earn an inheritance. It just comes by very relation to the person with all the goodies. And especially in the ancient world, that's the way it would have been understood. And then finally, it says that we, one of the spiritual blessings we receive in Christ is we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, more on that later, but for now, know that a seal is the sign that guarantees God's ownership of us until he comes to finally end it all and take us home. So, uh, we've seen sort of the spiritual gifts that God has given us in Christ. Now, let's take a look at how the passage says we obtain these blessings. First of all, pretty clear in this passage, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, in our experience of conversion, it seems very much to be the case that we chose him. We may even remember making what seemed like a conscious decision to follow Jesus, and therefore we sang the hymn that we have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Stop singing that song. Scripture says in reality the only reason you ever chose God is because he chose you long before even the foundation of the world was set, long before he even came on the scene. When he created you, he knew he was going to have you to be his. Second, it says he predestined us, very similar to being chosen. Uh, but it takes the idea, I think, a little further. It specifies even more how certain God's choosing is. 
Our salvation was not changeable by anything we do or don't do. It's not determined by you. It's not about you, but rather by his hands entirely. This is why I am such a monergist. Passages like this teach so clearly that it's just God who does the verbs. I mean, if he chose me before the foundation of the world, what part did I have to play in it? I mean, what part did I really get to decide in this equation? He's God, I'm not. I just He chose me by his grace, and he predestined me, and he did the same for you. It says he lavished his grace on you. That's the way that Paul describes it here. And the word lavish means to superabound or overflow. And the idea Paul is trying to communicate is that God didn't just grace you a little bit. He didn't just give you a little bit of grace. He didn't just infuse you with grace, as our Roman Catholic theologians will say. There's not a mixture of grace in your works. And No, no, no. Like he lavished it on you. He drowned you in it. He gave you everything you needed. He gave you, he, he superabounded grace on you. And he made known to you the mystery of his will. Now, the word mystery in the Bible does not refer to something that you sort of have to scope around, you know, search out like uh, Sherlock Holmes or something like that. But in the context here, the mystery of God's will being revealed, and this will be talked about throughout more of the book, is that his salvation is indeed for the whole world, for both Jews and Gentiles. And so the mystery that had been hidden that, that is now revealed is that God in Christ is working to save the entire world and bring the world to himself. And we're told, verse 13, that the church heard the word of the truth, the gospel of our salvation. So <clears throat> you ask, well, how do we go from being chosen before the foundation of the world? That doesn't you know, how do we experience it in real life? How does it happen in our actual experience? I mean, this, this chosenness. Well, the word is proclaimed, and we find ourselves believing it. We find ourselves saying, yes. And that's, so that's how the chosenness sort of meets us in real life. The word is proclaimed, the gospel of our salvation, and it creates faith in the promise, Romans 10, 17. And then it finally says, again, that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, what is a seal in Scripture? Well, again, a seal marks ownership. The word was used actually for a wax seal on a scroll. You can find that in like John 33, 33, and Revelation 5, 1 through 5, if you want a, an example of that. It was also for a, a brand on an animal or a tattoo on a slave or a soldier. And in the Old Testament, uh, we're told that, for example, God sealed Cain to protect him from those who would have wanted to kill him, Genesis 4.15. We're told that circumcision sealed the Israelites as God's people, Genesis 17.11, that circumcision sealed God's people. And uh, God's seal marks all those who are in heaven. Revelation chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, verses 9 through 4, or 9, 4. A seal leaves its image. Now here's where I want to take you. The seal in the New Testament, the sign that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, is baptism. How do you know you've been sealed by the Spirit? Well, Romans 4, 1, or Romans 4, 11 says that the sign of circumcision is the seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. Now, if you go to Colossians 2, 
verses 11 and 12, one of my favorite passages. Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. You can turn there if you like, but you don't have to. I'm going to read it to you one way or the other. Colossians 2, verse 11 through 12. Listen to the language here in describing our baptism. He says this, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So stick with me here. Paul says we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. In Romans 4.11, he refers to circumcision as the seal for Abraham. In Colossians 2.11 and 12, he says circumcision in the New Testament is replaced with baptism. So where did the seal take place? Where did the Holy Spirit say, mine forever stamp you with his very name? And your baptism. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. So what's the point of all this? Why did God do it? Well, at the very beginning, I didn't cover it, but I want to cover it now. We're given the reason, the motive, the modus operandi for why God does everything he does. And if you go back to verse 4, right before verse 5, it says this. He did it in love. So why has God done all of these things for you in Christ? Because for some amazing reason, he loves you. It's that simple. It's really that simple. He loves you. And because he loves you, he has done everything necessary to have you, to save you, to adopt you, to call you his own, to give you all of the gifts that he has. So the question really comes, can you just accept that? Can you just say, wow, sure, I, yeah, I'll take that. Because <laughs> that's what it comes down to. That's what it comes down to. He said in love, he's predestined you, he's chosen you, he's adopted you, he's saved you, he's forgiven you, he's given you all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, he's redeemed you, he'll have you as his own. It's not going to change no matter what. So you can accept it. All right, that's it, gang. I've got to go. I was a little longer today. Next week will be a little shorter. We'll dig a little further into Ephesians chapter 1. God bless. Have a great day.